Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. It's the best place to be. This morning I'm going to be reading to us from Mark 3, and I'll read from verse 7 up to the end of the chapter. Mark 3, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Adunia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boenerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaan, Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Bezebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they, went, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. May the Lord add blessing to this word. Good day. Let's pray together. Father God, you are the creator, the creator of all things. 
You are the continuer without which all would crumble. And you are the concluder. You establish the beginning and the end. In your power, you sustain. And you are so far beyond what we know, what we can understand. Your might, your greatness. And Lord, even your mercies are unfathomable. Lord, we are not a clean people. We are wicked and in need of you. Thank you that in Christ we have a Savior. We have hope. We have joy in the difficulties and the good times. Lord, it is our prayer now that you would teach us from your word that it wouldn't just be head knowledge, but Lord, it would change our very hearts. Oh, thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So I am up here today because Josh was at a preaching conference. And as I think about that, I should have been the one there and he should be the one standing here. Uh, but this gives me an opportunity, so I'm grateful for that. In this church, we believe what the Bible says. But lots of churches would say that. So to clarify, we believe that we need to express in preaching only what the Bible says. And Jen and I recall uh, a sermon a few years ago where at the end of it, Josh said, I, I need to repent. I spoke that thing out of my flesh. That wasn't, that wasn't the Bible. And that just speaks to me. Even, even a, a little incident like that, he, he was careful with. So we, we want to be careful with the Scripture. So generally, we practice two things when giving a sermon. Uh, one is exegetical preaching. And that means we try to determine and explain the original and intended meaning of a text. It's grammatical. It's technical. When we preach, we look at the best sources of language and historical scholarship that we can to see what the original language would have conveyed to the original listeners. Because translation from one language to another introduces differences. And language itself changes over time. So we can't just place our word meanings on the old words. When we do, problems arise. And two examples uh, that come to mind, when we read the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and it uses the word hand, what do we think of? 
hand. But the word actually means from here to here. This was the hand. So it kind of explains things why they hang uh, scripture off their hand, tie them to their hand. Well, it's, it's their wrists, it's their sleeves. Or when I say the word earth, you think of a pretty little ball in the sky surrounded by other planets. But in the ancient times, they didn't, they didn't think of the globe. Earth meant dirt. It was the land. So the waters covered the land. That's what, that's what Scripture was conveying. We, we need to know this because intuitively, I would not know that unless I learned it. And so that's why we search the Scriptures with exegetical eyes. Uh, then the second thing that we try to do uh, is called expository preaching, and we try to expose the ideas, the ideas that are in the text of Scripture and use only those ideas to determine what's preached. So in introducing the book of Mark, I really wanted to talk about how Jesus was born into a hostile world just like Moses. There was uh, the wicked Pharaoh who tried killing all the two-year-old boys in Lower and then in Jesus' time, Herod tried killing the two-year-old boys. And how Jesus had to go to Egypt and then exit it, just like Moses had to go to Egypt and then exit it. And I wanted to show all these connections that the book of Matthew makes to show that Jesus is better than Moses. He is the better Moses. But that's not in Mark. So I didn't do it. Mark skips Jesus' younger years altogether, and he jumps right into his ministry years. He focuses chapter after chapter so far on his authority, because Jesus is the Son of God. And so, the last few chapters, he's had authority. He's shown the authority to heal, the authority to cast out demons, the authority to interpret Scripture, and to teach new things. So, exegetical preaching tries to get right the original intent, and expository preaching tries to get right the specific message in each and every chunk of text. So in doing both, we endeavor to carefully honor Scripture and preach the whole gospel of Christ, not missing, rather, anything that is there, and not making up what isn't there. Today we're going to look at the second part of the passage that we started a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 3. And we're going to look to see how the two halves relate to one another and how each contributes to the singular purpose of this section of Scripture. So just to review, in the first few verses of this passage, starting in Mark 3, 7, we find Jesus teaching at the sea, and the crowds come to him because of their ailments, and their maladies. Maybe they liked his preaching, but absolutely they liked what he could do for them. For and that's why they were so persistent. He then heals and delivers many and tells demons who recognize him not to tell others who he is. Now remember the big teaching of this part of the story as it relates to the conclusion was that the crowds came from all points of old Israel. 
Mark 3, 7 and 8, say a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. These people are coming from the lands that used to be within the old borders of Israel when she was at her height. So there's this idea that all Israel is gathering, and they used to gather at the temple, but now they're gathering for Jesus. Then from this scene at the sea, Jesus goes up a mountain and summons his apostles. And we are to see that in calling his disciples, he is creating followers in the same way that he created the heavens and the earth. All of it's by the word of his mouth. Mark 3.13, he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now in this way, God, it is in this way rather, that God has always found followers by making them. God has to move first. He called Abraham out of Ur, Moses out of Midian, and Simon out of his boat. And the big lesson from this section was that the Lord is gathering his family. He's gathering them by creating them. Followers don't exist unless God creates them. Then after all old Israel gathers, and Jesus picks from them 12, in verse 20, he says, it says, he went home. Job done. Not really. Verses 20 and 21. Then he went home, and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. The crowds are back and thicker than ever, and then his family shows up. The actual phrase is, those who were of him. And it really conveys this idea that they were his kindred, his immediate family the people that knew Jesus best. So we get this progression from all Israel to 12 special followers and then his closest kin. But they think he's crazy. He's making these wild claims of deity. I am the son of man. He's prophesying the kingdom of God is near. And he's casting out unclean spirits and healing every disease. But likely what got their attention was the crowds. They're growing and growing, so much that his family can't even approach him. They can't get near him. They can't look in his eyes to determine what's really going on. So they say he's lost his mind. But in a twist, Mark gives, we get an insertion. Right in the middle of this story of his family, Mark plops down a story about the Pharisees. And this is a master storyteller move. It's a technique called intercalation, where you sandwich a story within a story. And it's used to to do two things. It's used to emphasize something that draws parallels out, and it also shows the passing of time. So Jesus' family was waiting for him, waiting a long time. We'll see this again in Mark, in the most recognized story like this, when Jesus meets the synagogue ruler named Jairus, 
and he goes to heal his sick daughter, but on his way, he's interrupted by a lady who has suffered bleeding for 12 years. Presumably, this interruption takes so long that the little girl dies. And so this insertion shows that time has passed, but it also emphasizes that Jesus has authority over both sickness, as with the woman, and authority over death, as with the little girl. So in this case, in our passage, the family story gets interrupted. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So now the scene is, we have the bigwigs coming down from Jerusalem. They've heard reports of Jesus' antics from their local branch managers. Now the CEOs are coming down to ground floor to make things right, to keep their machinery running. And they say to the crowds that are gathered, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts demons out. Now, Beelzebul is a kind of obscure word in the Bible. It's only found a few times in the Synoptic Gospels, and really it's only related to this story. But a similar name is found in 2 Kings, uh, verses 1, where bad king Ahaziah has a fall, and presumably something gets infected, And then instead of seeking God's prophet Elijah, he seeks answers from the God of the Philistines. So the verse, uh, 2 Kings 1-2, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. So Elijah, it's it's complicated, but Elijah ends up going and telling him, because you didn't inquire of the Lord, you will not live. And then, matter-of-factly, he dies. But over time, this name gets changed, becoming more of a byword than a title. It's not a name anymore. It becomes like a curse invoking demons or the devil. And Beelzebul means the lord of the dung heap. They're throwing names at him. It can mean the lord of the flies, as in the Lord of the Flies of the Dung Heap. It's, uh, it's childish. It becomes a catch-all for Satan and his minions. It's a pretty low insult, is what it is. But when you get mad, like slobbering mad, you say dumb things. And they go on to say more dumb things. They say that it is by demons that Jesus casts out demons. Very simply, Jesus then shows how that doesn't make any sense. Verse 23 and following. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. How can someone fight against themselves? Jesus doesn't mince words here. He says, you are playing with words like Beelzebul, when really, you're talking about Satan. So let's talk about Satan then. How can Satan fight against Satan? What's the point? A kingdom? A house? 
A demon at odds with itself cannot survive. Your logic is flawed. Your accusations are silly. But let's talk about what's really going on. You say my power is from Satan. But it is more than evident that my power is from the very spirit of the living God. And we get this understanding uh, by grouping verse 27 through 30 together. 27 says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. Satan is the strong man in this parable. And by the actions and the intentions of the Pharisees, it's clear that Satan is mighty and still hard at work. He is not divided. But God is stronger. And we have seen repeatedly through these first three chapters that Jesus has entered the devil's turf, broken into his home, and is pushing back. Christ ultimately has come to defeat Satan and all the forces of death and evil. He does this to show the unmatched glory of the Father, who sovereignly reigns over all and has allowed the devil some chain for just a short time. Then Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, all this could have been one sermon, except for this little exchange here. Jesus says that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. And that little indictment has caused so many questions over the past 2,000 years, it could be its own history class. Depending on the error, the era, rather, murder has been called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because humans bear the image of God. In other times, adultery was called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because the one flesh of marriage is cut in two. Or more commonly nowadays, it's usually considered unrepentance, living one's life without surrender to Christ. It seems that whichever sin is most condemned in a given culture, that's what tends, people tend to call this kind of blasphemy. But regardless of the error, the fear that one may have committed it and is therefore damned has gripped men in every generation. I found this interesting. Famed preacher and author Martin Lloyd-Jones, who pastored the Westminster Chapel in London from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, almost through the 70s, 1970s, he said, no other topic has worried or occupied my congregation more than if they were guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? That's only 50 years ago. What's happened between now, then and now? Today, there might be some that fear this kind of blasphemy, but I'd venture that it's a very small number. And I don't think it's because we have a better understanding of Scripture than they did 50 years ago. I do think, broadly, that our fear of God is gone. 
we've invented a God that we can come to as a chum. And we've turned Christ's message of grace into a hall pass for unholy living. You are my friends, and I will confess to you, I tend to live without much fear of God. I am supremely guilty of this. And then I catch glimpses of the appropriate fear that I should have when I stop and I think about who God is, who He really is. Consider this. This is 1 Chronicles 29. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and heaven's big and all that is on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hands are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Now, the Bible is replete with verses like this. It seems trite to just list a few. But more of God's glories are found in Job 37, Psalm 93, Hebrews 1. And when you begin to think sin is small, then God will just, and that God will just look the other way at your vices or your dalliances. Read these verses. Plead repentance. The question as to what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, and the terrifying question as to if one has ever committed it, has been a controversy throughout the ages. But if we are careful with the Scripture, I don't think it's too hard to understand. Going back to verse 27, if Satan is the strong man and Jesus has begun to steal from his house, it is done only in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is in his being empowered by the Holy Spirit that the man, Jesus, is stronger than the prince of demons. Remember, he laid his glory aside. He came as a human, but was fully reliant on God for his strength and his wisdom and his direction. So when the Pharisees call God's powerful spirit at work, the work of the devil, the very opposite of what's true, this constitutes the most serious of sins. Verse 29 and 30. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Calling God's work the devil's, is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Attributing a function of God's goodness in this world to Satan is ultimately lying. It's calling good bad, bad good. And that's blasphemy. That's the kind that is unforgivable. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And the Pharisees crossed this line, and there's no going back. Two things you need to think about today in respect to this 
First, this isn't some special way out their sin. It's a sin of regular, everyday people. It's a sin that comes out of who, who humans are. Second, the Pharisees in this story didn't just make a bad decision. They didn't just misread the situation. They knew better. They knew the truth and decided against it. We talked about this a few sermons back. The Pharisees are the best of us. They were the it crowd. They were the newest and greatest. They were the ones trying to lead the restoration of Israel. They weren't the stodgy old guard that we see, that we see in movies. They became that way. But if you had any religious bent, you would have wanted to be like them. They were the guys who were righteous to a fault. They were taking names and getting it done, except that it was all on their own steam, independent of God. And that's where they got it wrong. That's where they got it all wrong, because they wanted to live life and do faith on their own terms. And how many of us today want to live life and do religion on our own terms? That last, it should strike a chord. The Pharisees were doing everything right except it didn't include God. So they looked beautiful, but their insides were rotten. Christian, let this be a solemn warning to you. Leighton, let this be a solemn warning to you. Finally, in his explanation of this kind of blasphemy, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says a second thing that is super shocking. He says that every kind of sin ever, every wrong and wickedness that a human could otherwise commit can be forgiven. That's an astonishing claim. It is not astonishing that there is something unforgivable. It is astonishing that there are things that are forgivable. Jesus gives us the gospel here, the good news, that the perfect holiness of God can be entered into by sin-filled humans. In Exodus 33, 5, God speaks to Israel, but really he could be speaking to you and me. If you're a human, he's speaking to you. You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. His holiness is that powerful. But then a little later, he says, 12 verses later, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. What happened? How can the sinner come near God? How can the sinner not be consumed? How is this impossible thing possible? And if there is a scale of impossible things, this is 100% impossible, like 1,000% impossible for all you math people. This is the most impossible thing ever. We are asking, how can a cobweb prevail in fire? The answer is Jesus. God can come near sinners because of Jesus' death and resurrection. It takes away those sins. There is no wrong more powerful than Jesus' blood. 
and the redemption of the cross was effective backwards in time upon the people of God in the Old Testament and forward through the New Testament and into the, the present and the future. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We are made clean for all time. And then further down in verse 39, we are reminded, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Church, here's the good news. While all of us are capable of uttering or penning blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and this is a sin of words, spoken or written, the true Christian cannot and will not do it because Jesus has changed them. Those who have faith, their souls will be preserved. And verse after verse promise that God will save his people, not maybe, but will save his people. Romans 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. John 6.40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you depend upon God in faith, you are sealed, you are saved, you are safe. So now to tie all this together, we must remember that Jesus' family is still waiting at the door, right? Mark 3, 31 to 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Today's passage started with a representation of all Israel gathering around Jesus. People from every corner of old Israel, but no one in the crowd was Israel. Biologically, yes, but spiritually, no. Then skipping the call of the disciples for a moment, Jesus' family, his closest biological kin, mom and brothers came, but they were not Israel. They said he was nuts, which is a blasphemy, but not of the Holy Spirit. But then the Pharisees called him Beelzebul. They basically called him a sorcerer, someone who conjures the devil's work. And that brings us to the crux of the whole matter. Jesus' family 
were forgiven their words. His mother and his brothers actually became disciples later on. His family in the family of God. But the Pharisees stood condemned. Though they were from the right tribe, the right tongue, the right people, though they were spiritual giants, and though they knew the scriptures, their lives were far from God, and thus words of blasphemy just naturally flowed out of who they were. They called God's good evil. So we ask, who are Israel? Who are God's people? Verse 34 and 5. Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Israel, God's chosen family, was not in the crowd. It was not in his family. And it was not in the leaders of the religion. Israel was only found in Jesus. But he called 12. And he eventually called more. In calling the 12 to be his disciples, he reconstitutes the 12 tribes of Israel in the 12 apostles. In doing this, he affirms the powerful connection between Israel of the past and Israel of the present. And he shows that it is only upon his authority that humans are chosen to be in his family. And the proof, according to Jesus, is revealed in who is obedient to the will of God. What is the will of God? Let's look at Romans 12, 1 to 5. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though we are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another." God's will is that we would do good and love each other and witness to each other and the world of his excellencies, his perfections, his sovereignty, his might, and his mercy. My, cheer, my, my church, I need you for this. I can't sustain my faith on my own. To say it takes a village is a sweet platitude but a village will only get you a moral citizen. It takes a church. It takes a church to grow a child of God, young or old. I need the Peters and Larrys and Saritas in my life to ask, have you lied to your wife? Have you walked closely with Jesus this week? Have you asked your children for their forgiveness when you spoke without love. 
We are made for community, but it's the deepest kind of community. It is Christian community. This passage shows how God is building his family, but we need to go right back to verse 14 in Mark 3 to see how. Mark 3.14 says he appointed 12 so that they might be with him. The disciples' whole job was to be with Jesus. A disciples' whole job is to be with Jesus. Your whole job is to be with Jesus. That is the will of God. And you can't do that alone. And you can't just look like you're doing it. God's will for your life is to be with Jesus, to sit with him in quiet, to walk with him, to watch him, to listen to him, and to talk to him, to rest in him and to grow in him. Christian, be with Jesus with others. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are gathering a people. Thank you that no one has to do it alone. In fact, no one can do it alone. We need family. We need your family. Lord, I thank you that in Christ we have a brother and a savior. And that young and old we have sisters and brothers. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to have that kind of deep community that rebukes one another in sin, that disciples one another in truth, that loves one another no matter what. It's one thing to call somebody out on their sin. It is another to walk alongside them for the days, months, or years it takes to change. Lord, help us to be those kind of family members. Lord, it's my prayer. It is our prayer that you would help us be with Jesus. That Christ would occupy our minds our words, our actions. And that that job would not be done until you call us home or come get us. Father, we love you. Thank you for Christ. Amen.